great message from uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, and uh, I know today you'll be blessed as he comes and uh, preaches from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's a great passage, and uh, pray, pray for him as he comes this morning. Good morning. Last week I talked about, I showed you from here the the booklet, the workbook of the two languages that we had translated, the Northern Korowai language and the Indonesian language in the Salvation History Catechisms. It was a workbook over 750 questions. This week I want to show you, and I showed in fit, those of you who weren't there, the solar speakers that the translation was put on. We recorded this. Uh, I recorded this actually down in Virginia, uh, the second phase. The first phase I recorded in Papua. Uh, we have passed out now over 600 of these among the northern Korowai region. And it's got a little solar panel on the back, and they can they can charge it uh, that way, or they can either plug it into a charge outlet. Uh, they can't manipulate it or take anything on off of it or put anything on it. It is what it is. And so uh, I get to add things in the future to them. If so, if the Lord wills, but, uh, you were a part of this. And so these were, these weren't cheap. I mean, you're looking probably about $25 USD just for one. And we passed out 600 of these around the region. So, uh, for now, which I don't like, but for now, my voice is heard throughout the Northern Korai region. Uh, hopefully in the future, it will be, uh, my language helper. So thank you for being a part of that. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I had an uh, enormous time studying this section and uh, I tried to pack in at least three sermons into 45 to 50 minutes. So uh, please pray as we look at this together. Uh, I want to open in prayer and then uh, read this section of scripture and dive right in. So please pray with me. Father, I thank you for this section of scripture. I thank you for all of scripture. Uh, I thank you that we have it in our language. Uh, Father, it is with us. We can open it and study its depths and learn about you and your person and work of your the second person of the Trinity and your character and your nature and your attributes. Father, you are inexhaustible, and we find those depths in Scripture. So I pray that you would show us wonderful things from your word this morning. Guard my mouth, help it to be clear and to be um, preached with conviction, but also help your people as they listen and change us. Uh, for your name's sake among the world. And I pray that you would work in the Korowai this morning. Um, I pray that you would save the Korowai people. And I pray that you would continue your work through the labors that you have placed there. Thank you for this church, what it stands for. Thank you for the convictions it has. And I pray that you would raise up more people to go into the world because the harvest is ready, but the labors are few. So please raise people up even from this congregation. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Follow along with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 
When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The church was designed to obey several biblical mandates. One of those mandates is to glorify God through the preaching of the word. That's why the church exists. It exists to worship God through the preaching of the word. The scriptures must be central in the church. They must be. Otherwise, you do not have a biblical church. When the church does not obey the word, it will always find itself in spiritual chaos. Always. Usually, when a church is in spiritual chaos, either the shepherd or shepherds are living in sin, or they are not preaching the scriptures. Or, the church, the people, the congregation are disregarding the shepherd's teachings from the scriptures. Leaving the shepherds in a horrible state of discouragement. The Corinthian church would not be a church that any rational-minded pastor would want to shepherd. just wouldn't be. Who would want to serve this church knowing all the sin, the despair, and the discouragement that it has caused? Sin, bad doctrine, division, hostility, false teachers, and even persecution within the body. I want to set a picture for us here because it's important to understand the backdrop, what happened previously before chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So I want to set a a picture up in your mind that led up to this section that we're going to look at for a few minutes today. Paul leaves Corinth. Now, Paul founded the church at Corinth. Paul leaves Corinth after a short visit. After some time, he hears of some grievous sin in the church. And he hears of a sin about sexual immorality. He hears about fights within the brethren. And he hears about defiling the Lord's table. All of this is taking place in the church. 
And according to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, he writes a letter addressing these sins. Now, that letter has been lost. We do not have that letter today. But he writes a letter to address those sins. Paul is now in Ephesus, ministering to the, to the believers there. In fact, this is his third missionary journey in Ephesus. Some time passes after that first letter that we don't have. Well, I'd love to have it, wouldn't you? Some time passes and news comes again this time. It comes to him by way of Chloe's people, according to 1 Corinthians 1.11. News comes to him again. That there are quarrelings among the brethren. Now just imagine Paul. Here is the founder. The, he founded this church through the help of the Holy Spirit. And not only does he hear the first time about grievous sins, but then he hears again after a letter written, there's quarreling. You can just imagine Paul hanging his head with tears in his eyes swelling up and saying, God, what am I to do with these people? What is to be done? They just won't listen. You talk about discouragement. Paul experienced that in his missionary efforts. Listen to me. I don't know how many times I have cried out to God over the Korowai people. They just won't listen. I can preach the word every day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and they go out of the doors and do the very same thing that I preached against. God, what will you do with these people? Won't you do something? Save them. Do something in their heart. Paul's despair to hear sad news about this church again probably brought him to tears. One time, okay, I can correct them. There's a teaching opportunity. Twice? Really? Twice again? You're, you're, you're quarreling? You're sinning again after I've written to you? He writes a response, actually, to a letter. Now, after his first letter that was lost, he hears about the quarreling. The church of Corinth writes him a letter. So he responds. He responds to that letter. And that's the letter of 1 Corinthians, which we have. His response is, now, for, for just a second, let us not think that this is a casual, unfeeling apostle that writes the letter of 1 Corinthians just to shut them up. He is, he is passionate. About their spiritual well-being. 2 Corinthians 11.28 says. And apart from other things. There is the daily pressure. On me of my anxiety. For all the churches. Now Paul could not leave his ministry in Ephesus. So what does he do? He's a missionary in Ephesus. He can't leave. So what does he do? He sends his fellow partner, Timothy, maybe carrying 
the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church. Now, that letter appears to have resolved some of the disputes and problems in the church. Perhaps, oh, perhaps now there will be peace. Now that there is repentance and it's dissolved some of these disputes and problems. Not for long. A new threat, a new threat was looming over the Corinthian church and the most dangerous threat yet. False teachers. Isn't it something that false teachers can be anywhere in the world? I've had them come to the, to the Denawagi, one of the most remote places in the world, and false teachers find their way there, and they speak against the Trinity and try to steal children. Now tell me, what makes us think that that will not happen here? We must be careful. It can slip into the church so quickly. False doctrine. So quickly. Things like, things that have, that have uh, hurt the church and have come into the church. Things like the argument over the eternal sonship. Or things like uh, the deity of Christ. Or women. Now, one thing, women being pastors is being argued to be okay. Or social justice. Those things destroy churches because they are not biblically mandated. And yet now we have a new threat here where Paul is saying false teachers are coming in. Trying to destroy the flock that I have founded, that I have sweat blood over, spiritually speaking. These false teachers claiming to be just like Paul, they deceived the people. They were deceiving many in the congregation and they led many of them away from the truth. Paul receives news of this threat. Now that might be perhaps from Timothy. We don't know. But it seems obvious that it's probably from Timothy. Paul leaves Ephesus and he heads straight to Corinth. He can't stay in Ephesus. I've got to go. I've got to go. Because there's a disaster looming. Paul goes to Corinth and his visit is a disaster. He does not have a good visit. Apparently, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, verse 10, and chapter 7, verse 12, those sections, that an offender openly insulted Paul. Openly insulted Paul in front of all the church. Now, and by the way, the Corinthian church, no one said a thing in Paul's defense. No one. Imagine... Now, if you will, someone comes into Bethany Bible Church and openly slanders and insults Pastor Mark and Pastor Dave and no one says a thing. This is what happened to Paul. Can you imagine the sorrow that would heap upon the elder's soul? Paul returns to Ephesus and he writes a tearful letter. And he writes to them a tearful letter according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. That letter we don't have. That letter has also been lost. So there's been three. The first one's lost. The second one's 1 Corinthians. Now this letter is lost. This is where we come to the story in verses 12 and 13. Paul leaves Ephesus 
He's going to Troas, hoping to meet up with Titus. He leaves Troas, according to verses 12 and 13, for Macedonia because Titus is not there. He finds Titus in Macedonia, and the news is actually encouraging. Many have repented in the church of Corinth and have affirmed their loyalty to the apostle and to the truth. Now, although Paul receives good news, it's an encouragement to him. He wants to strengthen this church even more. And so he decides to write 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, possibly from Macedonia. Now, wait a minute. Why not go back to Corinth? You've heard some encouraging reports. Why not return and even strengthen them more so? Why not go back to Corinth? After all, some in the church were accusing Paul of being fickle. Doesn't Paul want to go back to Corinth? Why write a letter? Why not just visit? According to chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, in 2 Corinthians, Paul does not want to visit them. Paul wanted to visit them on his way to Macedonia and on his way back from Macedonia. But look at 2 Corinthians one twenty three. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. After the results of the last visit, Paul did not want to make another painful visit, according to 2 Corinthians 2.1. However, we see something in verses 12 and 13 that are for Paul and must be for us. At the forefront of all our ministry efforts. Verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. Preaching Christ was the reason he went to Troas. It was not to find Titus. And then while I think I'm here looking for Titus. I think I'll do some preaching. Paul's aim was to preach Christ. Christ had opened a door for the apostle to preach. Obviously, the people in Troas were responding to Paul's preaching. In the, uh, because Paul says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. See that? This means that there was an opening to labor with positive effects. The apostle had success. In his preaching. Now this is the kind of. Opportunity or opening that you and I would long for. In our preaching the gospel. Is it not? I mean we want to see people come to saving faith. When we preach to them. Whether that be a family member. Or a friend. Or a group of rowdy people. Or violent people. We want to see them come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul prayed for this, and he, he even asked the Colossians to pray for this way, this way in Colossians 4.3, which says, And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. 
In fact, this phrase, open to us a door for the word, this is a reoccurring phrase in the New Testament. He uses that quite a bit in his letters. This is not some random choice. Well, I just think I'll go to Troas today. No, Paul is aimlessly wandering. He's not just, okay, I think I'll go to Troas and I'll just aimlessly wander around Asia Minor to see who I can preach to. No, he is led by the Holy Spirit. He is led by God under the Lordship of Christ for the proclamation of the gospel. But something's wrong. Something is wrong. Christ had opened a door for him to preach to the people in Turkey, which that's where Troas is. And I often think about that. My friend that just passed away, he was a missionary in Turkey. He did a fantastic job preaching Christ up until his death. Paul just, he has an open door for the people of Turkey, but he is restless. He doesn't feel at rest. Why is that? Why is Paul restless? Paul is anxious to hear about the condition of the Corinthian church. That's why he's restless. Can you not just kind of imagine, not that this happened, but imagine the apostle biting his nails. Where is Titus? Where is he? Oh, I hope he gives me a good report. Wonder what the condition is right now. He is seeing people come to faith in Christ in Troas, but cannot stop thinking about the condition of the Corinthian church. Will they follow the false teachers? Will they love me as a brother in the Lord and listen to my instruction? Have they dealt with all the sin that I addressed in my letter? Paul was so afflicted by these thoughts that the ministry in Troas seemed of little value to him. And listen to me, when you have elders that care for your soul like that, you are blessed. You are blessed and you have that here. Thank God for that every day. There is an indication that Paul was so torn apart by his love for the Corinthians that he was depressed. Now, I've struggled with depression. I know what that's like. This is not just some, oh, I'm just sad. This is obviously a depression. Don't think that the apostle is just so super spiritual and superhuman that he can't feel the emotions that bring down his soul. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verses five and six say, for even when I came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. He was depressed. I believe that Paul had to deal with some serious fears here. And I believe that. Like we do. We have to deal with some serious fears. Paul had to deal with some serious fears. And relief was only found when he relied upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is there not some sort of application here for us? 
You might be experiencing the worst fear over a situation in your life or find yourself in the darkest prison in your mind thinking there is no way I will ever escape this. And I say to you, there is hope. There is hope. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. There is joy inexpressible waiting for you that will shatter all your fears and all those days that seem if the darkest times will never lift. And you know how you do that? You cast all your fear and all your despair on the Son of God, Christ Jesus. And you do that by repenting of any sin, whether that's known or unknown sin, And you feed on His promises from the Word. And you give yourself to the fellowship of the church. Where you can be encouraged by others who have gone through the same things you are now experiencing. I've been there. And like Paul, he was there. And Christ will be pleased. To calm those fears and he will restore the mind and give you peace. Verses 12 and 13. Now, we've read those. Verses 12 and 13 are placed in a beautiful position to set the transition for verses 14 through 17. This little section. However, the question I had when I studied this. Now, I don't pick just random passages and want to preach. This was my Bible reading. I came across this section because chapter 2 is really hard to understand for me. I came across this section and I went, what is he saying? So I read through and I went back and said, I want to study this. And it became what we are hearing today. The question I had as I studied this, because Paul has already met with Titus. He's heard a good report about the Corinthian church. So why does he not mention that somewhere between verses 14 through 17? That was my question. Instead, we get four verses, or five really, uh, four, excuse me. We get four verses that seem to be, appear as if they were, out of place from his thoughts in verses 12 and 13. Well, there's a reason why he doesn't mention it here. Because verse 14 gives us the heart of this letter's structure. This is the heart of Paul in chapter 2, verse 14. Paul gives us the richest of theological thought on the Christian ministry. Paul is dealing with authentic ministry while he brackets in those chapters... Chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 4. He gives us rich theological thought on Christian ministry while bracketing in those chapters references to Titus, to Paul's restlessness, and to Macedonia. That's why he specifically doesn't mention it. Verse 14 starts off by saying, But thanks be to God... 
In verses 12 through 13, Paul says, I'm restless. I'm anxious. I have no rest in my soul. In verse 14, when he says, but thanks be to God, he is saying, so grateful am I now. Something obviously has happened. Why is he saying that? I believe Paul is thankful now, but thanks be to God, he is thankful for the news he has heard from Titus. Even though he does not specifically mention it here. He is also thankful for the spiritual fruit that they have seen everywhere they have been, like in Troas. And even the reports from Corinth. That's why he can say, but thanks be to God for what has happened at Corinth and even possibly he might be thinking about Troas. Verse 14 says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the knowledge, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now that's interesting language. I find that really interesting language. Paul has Christ leading a parade of victors. See that? Why this joyful language from a guy that just recently was discouraged and depressed over the ministry in Corinth? How can there be such a sudden shift in his attitude? Paul moves from the pit of despair to marching behind Christ in a triumphal parade. Why? I'll tell you why. Because a thankful heart is always good medicine for a discouraged one. Always. He's thankful to God for what he's heard. The phrase that he uses here, leads us in triumphal procession, is also used in Colossians 2.15, where he says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. And then he says, by triumphing over them in him. It's the same word used here. It simply means triumphs over us. Now, when Paul says in Christ, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, Paul has in mind here a picture of a Roman parade celebrating a victorious Roman general who is coming home from battle. I read that, I don't know how many times I've read that, and just didn't realize the depth of what Paul is thinking here as he writes this. In verse 14, Christ parades his trophies on a public street. Like Paul, those of us that follow Christ in saving faith are trophies of his grace through his victorious power. And we can proudly proclaim That's my king. That's my Lord. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. He is the one that leads the parade. 
Look in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. I want to read this one verse. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. It is the one here that Paul is 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 displaying in this picture of Christ leading victorious. The parade of men. Only our only true triumphs are God's triumphs over us. So are we thankful that we are led by a sovereign Christ in all our circumstances, no matter how bad they become? Do we believe in his sovereignty at those times? And what is more excellent is that we follow our king in this triumph that he has secured for us through his victory over sin and death and hell. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail or overpower it. Matthew sixteen eighteen. You know, we may suffer setbacks and discouragements in this life, but our triumph is certain. But how many people do you know and I know that part with Christ at the crossroads of suffering? How many people part with him when it gets too difficult? I just can't take that. He's the one that leads the triumphal procession. He's the one that leads you into his splendorous kingdom. We are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans eight seventeen. Now, in verses 12 and 13, Paul here is, it's interesting, Paul uses, or excuse me, Paul wrote in the first person singular. In verses 12 and 13. In verses 14 and 17, Paul is speaking in the first person plural. Okay, what's that about? Why does he transition from, from I to we? He says in verse 14, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Is he speaking here of the apostles and their ministry or is he including the believers in Corinth? That was because this will really help us understand what he's talking about here. I believe the us here is speaking of Paul and his mission team. He, because he uses the words dehemon or, or he uses also hemas, which indicate a reference to himself and his mission. Now, we can't think just for a second, just because it's referring to Paul and his team, that believers are off the hook regarding influencing people with the saving knowledge of Christ. The church, 
The church is the fragrant aroma of Christ. And that fragrant aroma is in the world. See that? The church in the world. That's why we preach Christ in our homes and at work and in the world. That is why we send missionaries into the world. That is why you have sent me to the Korowai people. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The image of Christ here leading the triumphal procession in 14a and making, now bear with me, listen, because I don't want to lose you. The image of Christ leading the triumphal procession in 14a and the making known this aroma, this smell in 14b are directly connected. They both have to do with the proclamation of the gospel in the world. Because the phrase in verse 14, the knowledge of him, see that? The knowledge of him is a specific knowledge about God's salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown it in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This knowledge is the knowledge, a specific knowledge about God's salvation. Now it appears that this aroma that he speaks of here, or fragrance, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, is introduced, which is introduced in 14, is carried into verses 15 and 16. That's the dominant image which fills this section with word pictures. The Roman emperor would sit on his throne during the triumphal procession, watching perhaps the senate, the generals, and the army marching toward the throne of the emperor. And they would pass by, and they would stand proudly and march proudly as the public saw them pass by. But there was one thing that would reach the emperor at the very end of the parade. The emperor would smell the aroma of the, or the fragrance of the incense that they would carry. Here, Paul transitions from verse 14 to verse 15 by giving us a picture of who receives the aroma and where it comes from. Now, according to verse 15, it's right there in front of us. It is God. Who receives the aroma. In a Roman parade it's the emperor. But here it is God who receives the aroma. But the aroma is not of us. But of Christ. See that? 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Now, the genitive noun here may be a genitive of source. Let me explain that. We could say, for we are the aroma from Christ to God. See the difference? Here, my translation, and perhaps several others have it, it says we are the aroma of Christ, the aroma of Christ to God. I think it's a genitive of source. We are the aroma from Christ to God. Paul was, now Paul was only concerned about pleasing his master, the Lord. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. That is our aim in the Christian life, to please the Lord. Offering up our obedience to him so that we are in a pleasing aroma to God. That's Christianity. If you're not pleasing God in your obedience, don't care anything about being obedient to His Word, you are not a Christian. A Christian cares about being obedient. Not that they can do it perfectly, but when they sin, they feel this conviction from the Holy Spirit, they feel a remorse, and they want to repent of that sin And turn around and follow in the opposite direction. If that's not you, you're not a Christian. To be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be saved from an eternal death to an eternal life. In Christ, by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That is why we can say we are the aroma From Christ to God. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the first five books of the Bible written in the Greek language, there is a formula that is used. Osman uodias, which means fragrant aroma. When those words are used in the first five books of the Old Testament... It speaks of sacrifices, fragrant aroma from the sacrifices that the children of Israel would offer up to Yahweh. However, in our text, Paul does not use those two words together. In verse 14, he says the word fragrance. In verse 15, aroma. In verse 16, fragrance. And again in verse 16, fragrance. He doesn't use that that uh, wording, that formula together. This means that Paul is giving us imagery of good and bad smells. The fragrance of the gospel from Paul is a good smell to God. Now, in verse 15... Paul expands this imagery of the fragrance in the triumphal procession with a positive and negative contrast. He says in verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
What in the world does that mean? Well, the gospel has an effect on those being saved. But it has a different effect on those perishing. The imagery of the Roman triumphal procession is still here because what happened was, when you learn about this section, captured enemies from the Romans would also be on public display in the parade. And you know what they were being displayed for? To lead to their certain death. Paul has that in mind here. For those captured enemies, the celebration in the parade was the fragrance of death. They were headed to death and they knew it. He has that in mind here. According to verse 16, this odor, this fragrance stinks for the captured enemy. Which is being led to a certain death. Now, put that in different way. Those that are perishing, the gospel stinks of death. For those that are perishing, the gospel stinks of death. This refers to those that do not respond positively to the good news of Jesus Christ. Why does it stink for them? That are perishing because they are spiritually dead. This is understood by the words in verse 16. From death to death. You see that? They're spiritually dead. And they're being led by this stink to an eternal death. No spiritually dead person can enjoy the sweet, all-satisfying aroma of Christ. They have no idea what joy, what beauty, what fragrance there is in Christ. Because they can't see, because they are spiritually dead. They are a corpse, spiritually speaking. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. The phrase, those who are perishing, in verse 15, is also used in chapter 4, verse 3. You might already have that open since you're in chapter 2. Where he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those that are perishing. See that? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Listen, God's mercy and God's justice are on display in these verses. In verses 15 and 16. God's mercy and God's justice are on display in verses 15 and verse 16. God is pleased. Now, hear me. Listen to me. God is pleased to express His mercy to the unrepented heart. While also pleased to express His justice to the stubborn, unrepentant heart. 
He must do that. Otherwise, he would not be a just God. When God's word is preached, it will accomplish all that it has been decreed to accomplish. This is the hope of the gospel. God will accomplish all that has been determined to accomplish in his sovereign will, in the salvation of those that are being saved and the destruction of those perishing. Oh, that all the Korowai would believe. That's how I pray. His arm is not too short to save. Oh, that he would save my children. Oh, that he would save our grandchildren. He's not too short. And if they're not walking with God. You plead with him. Plead with him. Now, but according to verse 16, to the one, a fragrance from death to death also means that the odor, the smell of the gospel and the gospel ministry anticipates their own destruction and judgment. Now, as a footnote, if you will, I truly believe that verses 14 through 17, Paul is showing the relationship between the aroma of the gospel and the fragrance of his authentic apostolic ministry. I believe Paul is defending himself here in these verses. And he needs to because of the false teachers that are still present in the Corinthian church. This is why the imagery in verses 15 and 16 are so important because Paul is setting apart himself and his ministry from those who are perishing. You see that? Those who are being led from death to death, spiritually dead to an eternal death. But there's a contrast. For those whose fragrance is from life leading to life, they follow Christ in saving faith. And that is a sweet odor to God. Now, although that is true, Paul is also verifying his authentic apostolic ministry so that the Corinthians can see that his message and ministry is a true gospel message and ministry. And that true gospel message and ministry is a pleasing incense, a pleasing aroma to God. Verse 16, the last phrase says, who is sufficient for these things? Verse 17 says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul answers this question, who is sufficient for these things, in a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 5. You want to look at that. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. To have a role such as Paul had, direct from God, was a grave, daunting responsibility. And Paul responds, 
Who's qualified for this role? Paul does not need letters of commendation from the Corinthians or any other church to become qualified for the ministry. Paul teaches us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, that it is through the Spirit that a person receives recommendation and qualification. So the question remains. Now you ask yourself a lot of questions when you study. The question remains, what does Paul mean and what is he trying to teach the Corinthian believers and us when he asks, who is sufficient to proclaim the gospel? Now, after all, the gospel is the dividing line for all humanity. It's the dividing line. This may be posed as the key question for the entire book because he wants to vindicate his apostolic mission because he says in verse 17, for we are not like what? So many. I believe the so many here are the false teachers that are plaguing the church. We are not like those false teachers peddling God's word. Who meets the standards to preach the gospel? Listen, Corinth, it's not those false teachers that you have been listening to. They are peddlers of God's word. What does that mean? Peddling God's word. Well, the word peddler is the Greek word kapuleo. It's only used once in the New Testament and it's here. It means someone that is a con artist or Someone that tricks people into receiving a knockoff item. Here, just take this. This one's really good and it's just worthless. They're trickery. They're con artists. This is exactly what the false teachers were doing to the Corinthian church. They were selling a false gospel. Paul is saying, listen, Corinthians, I speak in sincerity, in the power of Christ, in the sight of God. Not in my own power, but in Christ's power. Do you see the difference in those false teachers? Now look at me. Paul recognizes at the same time his own weakness. He recognizes his dependency upon God. He recognizes his inadequacy. That's why he does not need to trick people because the power rests in Christ alone. Listen, I don't want to stand before you if it were not for the power of Christ. In myself, it would all be worthless. Preaching is through the power of Christ. That's why he doesn't need to trick people. Because it rests in Christ. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty with power. Anyone can preach a false gospel on their own power. But someone that preaches the true gospel can only do that by divine power. Not in themselves. So, who is sufficient to proclaim the gospel? Well, the apostle was. And you and I are only sufficient... Because of the new covenant and the work of God in that new covenant in us 
in us through Jesus Christ. You see, it's really all of Christ. Our lives, our words, everything we do rests in the power of Christ. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's work, Bethany. Let's work hard. But at the same time, recognizing that our ministries, when we preach Christ, when we witness, when we live in obedience, that rests in the power of Christ under the submission of the word. Let's be these kinds of people for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. I thank you for his substitutionary atonement. Would you please be, show your mercy, Father, to the unrepentant heart this morning. Show your mercy. And we know, Father, that you are just and your justice is just. But, Father, we beg for mercy. So please, save our families, save our friends, save the people that we have been called to minister to. For our sufficiency rests only in you in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Christ's name.